What a blessing that was, that we have the good news of Jesus, and we get the privilege of telling it to others. I pray that song gets stuck in all of our heads, not just today, but all this Christmas holiday, because it is good news that we get to celebrate together. It is good to see you this morning, Gateway family. I want you to find Psalm number two this morning, Psalm number two. We're going to spend today and the next two weeks looking at a type of psalm that we've not looked at yet, and that's a type of psalm known as the Messianic Psalms. The Psalms are about the Messiah. The Psalms that point us to Jesus Christ. The Psalms that the New Testament authors quote to show us who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, if we're going to look at the Messianic Psalms, we need to understand the term we're talking about, and that's the term Messiah. So as we come to the term Messiah in the Scripture, it's a Hebrew term from the Old Testament. Now, when you hear the word Messiah, we go straight to Christ, but it was a common word at the time. It was used more than 30 times in the Old Testament. It was not used as a title. The word Messiah was an adjective. It described a person who had been anointed with oil. And we've seen this in the Psalms where oil had been poured on a person to set them apart for service. Now, in particular, in the Old Testament, the ones who were described as the anointed ones were the kings of Israel. The kings had been set apart to lead the people. And so they were called the anointed ones. I take the New Testament written in Greek and you translate the word Messiah and it comes out as the word Christ. Christ means Lord, means the anointed one, the king over others. So Messiah and Christ are both terms that mean the same thing. So the Messianic Psalms, starting with Psalm 2, and there's many others, point us to the coming of Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself. Now to understand the Messianic Psalms, they're a little bit more difficult. And so you have to look at them with two lenses as you read them. So imagine for a minute you have on bifocals. Now some of you don't have to imagine, some of you do, but all of you imagine you have bifocals on. With bifocals, you have to look down to see something, the bottom part of the lens, to see something up close. But to see something at a distance, you look through the top part, the top lens, to see something far away. That's what you have to do spiritually with the Messianic Psalms. You have to look down and look up at the same time. When you're reading Psalm 2 or any of the Messianic Psalms, you have to look through one lens first. That's the looking down. That's the historical part of it. Looking to see what happened in Old Testament history. To look at the context of what was going on. The history of the people the history of the kings. So this morning, if we look at Psalm 2 and look down through the bottom part of our bifocal, so to speak, we're going to be seeing what actually happened with Israel and kings of Israel and how they are described and what their task is to be. But we also have to look up. You'll miss part of the Psalms and the meaning of them if we only look at the historical context. The Messianic Psalms have a part where you look up to the top half of your bifocal, so to speak, there to see how this points us to Christ, to see Jesus who had not yet come in human history when this was written, to describe, to see what they were looking forward to in his coming, the coming of the true Messiah who would come rescue his people. You have to view both at the same time. So as we go through Psalm 2 or any of the Messianic Psalms, you look down, look up, look down, look up, and don't get dizzy in the process. You have to keep both in view the whole time you're looking through one of these particular Psalms. So as we read Psalm 2 this morning, I want you to be looking for both as we read through these 12 verses. Look at where do we see history here of the Old Testament kings. But how do we see that they can't fulfill what's written here? And this is pointing us looking up to Christ. So look for both as we read this morning. So as we come to Psalm 2, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. What a treasure, friends, we have in our hands right here that we get to see God's words to us. Psalm number two, I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Words will also be on the screen for you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful that you have not hidden yourself from us. But God, you've revealed yourself to us. And you've shown yourself to us. So Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for Psalm 2 this morning. I pray this morning, Lord, as we look at it, that you would let us see the hope people have for the coming of the Messiah. But God, I pray you'd stir our hearts with hope as well. God, it's not be just something historical for us, but God, we would see the beauty, Lord Jesus, of who you are. And you would stir our affections, stir our desires this Christmas season to want more of you in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's one thing I want you to see from Psalm 2 this morning. It's simply this. We find hope when we delight in knowing the Messiah. We find hope, friends, when we delight in knowing the Messiah. Psalm 2, we'll see in just a minute, shows us a world of brokenness, a world that is hard for God's people. And we all, every single one of us who names the name of Christ, need hope. And where is that hope found? It's not going to be found in anything this world can offer to us. No amount of money can give us hope. No amount of success or relationships or political figures or kings or any rulers can give us true hope. True hope is only found in not just knowing about the Messiah, but knowing him personally and delighting in him. We find hope when we delight in knowing the Messiah. I want you to see that here in the psalm. Let's start with the idea of needing hope. The world is hard for God's people. Go back to verse 1 and look at the picture that's painted for us here of the world that we have to live in. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What you have here is a description of a broken world. A world that is not as it was created to be. It's in a sinful and a broken state. The nations are in turmoil and in fighting. That's what it means that they're raging. People are plotting to hurt one another's. It sounds like this is what the headlines can be if you turn on the news every day, isn't it? This is what you see happening all over the world and all across our country and even here in our own community. But don't miss something here. The world is raging. People are plotting. But who are they primarily plotting against? Who are they primarily opposing? Who does the world see as the greatest threat? Verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against who? Who's next? Against who? The Lord, they primarily are opposed to the Lord. Here, Lord is in all caps. This is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the revealed name of God. The world is opposed to and hates the true God who's the creator of all, who they are accountable to, and who has revealed himself to the world he made. The world is opposed primarily to God. But that's not all they're opposed to. Look back at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, against his anointed. Now, with those spiritual bifocals, look down right now. Look historically at what was happening at the time. His anointed was a phrase at the time in Old Testament history for the king of Israel. So looking down at this part of the psalm in historical setting with people, this would be the king of Israel at the time this was written. Now, why was he called his anointed? That may seem strange to us. We've seen this before in other psalms. 
Why would you call a king the one who's had oil poured over his head? That may seem strange to us, but the Jews would understand it at the time. This is what was done at the coronation, the setting apart of a king. I want you to see it. 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 12. We'll have it on the screen for you there. In 2 Kings 11, 12, this is the coronation, the setting apart, if you will, of one of Israel's kings, the king Joash. And it says this, Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king, and what did they do to him next? They anointed him. They poured oil all over him there. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. So when we come back to Psalm 2, and the people are opposed to God, to Yahweh, and to his anointed, they would immediately in the context understand this to be the earthly king who had, been, had oil pulled over his head when he had been set apart as king. The nations, the lost world hates not just the God of Israel, but they hate the king that God has put over his people because that king represents God. So if they hate God, they hate the king that he's put over his people. And friends, human nature hasn't changed. Today, the world still opposes God, and they still oppose God's people. That's why we pray for persecuted people in the world. That's why we pray for unreached people. That's why we gave you that thing in your bulletin this morning, so you can pray more informed for the church that is persecuted by the world. We saw this in John 15 when we studied the Gospel of John. Jesus had warned us that the world will hate us because they hated him first. That is the reality of the world then or now, a world that hates God and hates God's people. And friends, that hatred is really tragic in two ways. And the Psalm 2 shows us how tragic the opposition of the world really is. First, it shows us it's it's tragic because the the world is rejecting the very thing they need. The world is turning their back on the very thing that would give them hope and give them what they're looking for. We find this in verse 3 here. Let us burst, this is the world speaking here, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Whose cords? Whose bonds? The bonds of the Lord and his People. Now, what in the world is this talking about here? What bonds are they breaking? What cords are they breaking? We find the answer in Hosea chapter 11, verse 4. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 4, notice the similarity of the terms here. This is God speaking of how he cares for his people. I led them, the Israelites, God's people, with cords of what? Of kindness. Okay, now, in Psalm 2, the world is breaking God's cords with cords of kindness. And he leads them with the bands of what? The bands of love. God says, I led them with cords of kindness, and the bands are the bonds of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. What the world is throwing off and opposing God is his kindness and his love and his care for them. And they're rejecting as well God's people where true community is found and true love and relationships are found. And so the the opposition of the world is tragic, because they're rejecting what they need. But it's also tragic, friends, secondly, because their efforts will not succeed. No matter how many kings get together, how many armies, how many people seek to oppose God, they cannot succeed. Look back in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in what? In vain. Their efforts are vanity. Their efforts are pointless. They cannot succeed against God. Why? Well, just as we sang in that last song before the kids got up, God is sovereign. Sovereign, he has the right to rule and the power and the ability to rule. God is sovereign, he cannot be stopped. Look at verse 4, how it describes it for us in this beautiful way here. So the world is opposing God, verses 1 to 3. The world is opposing God's people, and here's God's response. Verse 4, he, God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs at the attempts of the opposition of the world. Now what do we make of that? Well, imagine you have a two-year-old. 
Some of you don't have to imagine. Some of you have been there before. But imagine you had a two-year-old, or you've seen a two-year-old, and that two-year-old walks into you and says, you will give me a cookie right now, or I'm going to push you over and tackle you and hurt you. Now, if you're a parent, hopefully you've disciplined the child for that outburst. If you're looking on at the restaurant, you may laugh when you see that because you know how absolutely sad and foolish the picture is when you see the folly of that two-year-old who really thinks they could get their way by demanding and pushing, trying to push over an adult. It's foolish. How much more foolish when people on earth go, I can do what I want to do and God can't stop me. How much more so than a two-year-old with an adult when created beings who are so finite and so limited look at the vastness of the creator and all he's done and go, you can't tell me what to do. You can't stop me. I'm going to stop you. And when God looks at that, he laughs. He laughs because it's so sad. It's so foolish. God knows they won't succeed, but God will get the final word. It's not just he laughs. He then turns and he will judge them for what they've done. Look at the last phrase of verse 4. The Lord holds them in derision. And then in verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This is a part of God's character that we don't talk about enough, that we tend to shy away from. But God's holiness, that he's perfect. And because God is perfect, he must punish every sin. We call that his justice. And when he applies his justice to sinful people, that's called his wrath. Friends, these are not bad attributes of God. These are good attributes that come out of his holy character. These are not things we need to be apologetic for or ashamed about. This is the goodness and the character of God on full display for us, that he is good and he must and he will punish every sin. And friends, for us, his children, there's a lot of hope in that because it means injustice will not succeed. There may be injustice in this world for a season. God has the final word. And every sin, every wrong will one day be taken care of. And God will make all those wrongs right. But the kings here, the King David who's writing this, isn't just looking forward to that day when God makes all wrongs right. He knows that God is sovereign, not just in the future, but sovereign today also. And look at his confidence that God's going to take care of him today. Verse 6, he, he, he looks at what God has said. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In the Hebrew here, the word I is emphatic. That means it's shouting here. God is speaking, says, for me... I will do what I want to do, and you can't stop me. God is proclaiming his absolute sovereignty, and at this point in history, his will, his sovereign will, was to have a king sitting in Zion. Zion just means Jerusalem. There's another name, another reference for where the king was to be and where the temple was to be. And so God is saying, the world may oppose me, but I will have my king in Zion, and you can't stop me. My king will be in Jerusalem. And that was the hope that King David cling to because in verse 7 here it switches from God talking to the earthly king talking at his coronation at this point to where he's speaking of what happened. He's telling what what God said to him. So look at verse 7 and the confidence of God's king over Israel here. He, the king, says, I will tell of the decree. Now just stop here for just a minute. The word decree is a specific word here. It's a legal word for adoption. And so what you have the king of Israel, which the New Testament ascribes to David here saying is, yes, the nations oppose us. Yes, the world hates us. But God has told me very clearly that he has set up his kingdom and he has set me as king over this. And he says very specifically, let me tell you what God said to me. God said, I'm adopting you. You are my chosen one. What David is saying here is, I know that I'm not here by my own doing. That I'm here because the sovereign hand of God has Put me here. And that's what he goes on to say in the verse 7. I will tell of the decree of the adoption. The Lord said to me, You are my son. 
today I've begotten you. So again, you're looking through the bottom part of your bifocals right now. This is David talking where God has spoken to him and said, I'm setting you apart as king. I'm treating you as my son to take care of my people. And so the king had confidence that God was going to work in him and do this. In fact, the king has such confidence because of what God says to him next. Look at verse 8. This is God telling the king to pray this. Ask of me, pray this, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God's plan all along for Israel was not for them to monopolize God's blessings. God's plan all along was for Israel to receive the blessings of God and to use it to make him known in all the world, that the whole world was to be blessed through Israel. And so God says to the earthly king, ask me, pray, I will enlarge your kingdom so that my kingdom, my name is known in all of the earth. But did that fully happen? No. Far from it. And that's the major point of these messianic psalms. They are a reality check for us that the earthly kings kept failing and failing and failing and failing and failing. King David commits adultery. King David murders. King David relies on human wisdom instead of on God's wisdom. His son Solomon follows after him, has hundreds of wives, follows into the sexual sin as well, is lured away. You have king after king after king after king failing these things. And so the hope of this psalm of the nations knowing God, of peace reigning in the earth, has not yet been realized. And that's exactly the point of this. As you look down to the bottom part of those bifocals, so to speak, looking at Psalm, you go, this is incredible that God offers us, but this hasn't happened yet because no human man can bring this about. No earthly king, no regular king can make this happen. Another one must come who can make it happen. That's where you begin to look up the top part of those lenses, and the one who will come, the true Messiah, who will accomplish all that has been done here. And that's where Psalm 2 now points us to Jesus, the one whose birth we are celebrating this time of year, the one who is a descendant of David and has the right to be the king, as we will see next week, and the one who will fulfill all of these promises. So look up now. Let's look through the top part of our bifocals, so to speak, and let's look at how this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Look back at verse 1. Why do the nations rage... And the people's plot in vain. Now, when I read this, if this sounds familiar to you outside of Psalms, there's a reason for that because it's quoted in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, I'll have it up on the screen for you. Acts chapter 4, this is Peter and John after they've been persecuted and arrested. And so, what happens when Peter and John get released from prison? The early church is growing and the gospel is spreading and God's kingdom is growing. The religious leaders at the time aren't happy about it, they're ticked off. That God's name, that Jesus' name is spreading. So here's what happens here to Peter and John. When they were released, they went to their friends, the early church, and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Verse 24. And when they heard it, this is the early church, they lifted their voices together and said, Lord, this is awful. Why don't you get us out of this? You know, they, they appeal to the sovereignty of God. Sovereign Lord. The very thing we've seen in Psalm 2. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So notice what's happening here. The early church is looking to Psalm 2 to explain their situation then. That the opposition of the world to Peter and John and all the early church, they saw as a fulfillment of Psalm 2. But particularly why? Because notice this, it says, they were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So when we were looking at Psalm 2 through the bottom part of our lens, 
That was King David and the other kings that the world hated because they represented God. But we have to look up now. Verse 27 tells us who this anointed was in. Anointed one truly was. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant. Who? Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Here in Acts 4, they apply Psalm 2 to Jesus, that Jesus is now the anointed one. He is the one who everyone is opposing here. The world that hated God's kings in the Old Testament hates when God comes in human flesh here. So you look down at Psalm 2, you see an earthly king who's being opposed because he follows God. And then Psalm 2, you look up, you see the foreshadowing of Christ coming, the eternal king who would endure hostility from his created beings to redeem them. But there's more. Go back to Psalm 2. Look down in verse 6 now. This is where God was speaking. It says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So again, when we were looking down at this text in the, in the bottom lens, this was talking about God establishing David and Solomon and the guys who followed after them as kings. But as you look up through the top lens, you have to see here, this is ultimately talking about Jesus, the one that the Father has sent to rule and to reign. This is the concept you see in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, when the angel appears and says to this about Jesus, he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God, the Father, will give to him the throne, the right to rule as king of his father David. So Psalm 2 is telling us that the Father will set a king over the people, and in Luke 1 we see from the angel this ultimate king is himself, Jesus. But there's more. Go back to Psalm 2. Let's see how it points to Jesus. Verse number 7, the next verse. This is the earthly king talking. I will tell of the decree of the adoption. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So looking down, this is Israel's king being chosen by God. But looking up, this is Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity who has come to be the son of God and to rescue us from our sins. This title, You Are My Son, you see it in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. This is at Jesus' baptism. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see, the Father God speaking about God the Son with his terminology of sonship. It's repeated at the transfiguration. But notice what happens in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, verse 32. You have here Paul and Barnabas speaking to the church. And here's what they say. We bring you the good news... That what God promised to the fathers. Okay, what, what did God promise was going to happen? Verse 33 here. This he has fulfilled to us, their children. Okay, they're excited. A prophecy of the Old Testament is being fulfilled before their eyes. And what is it? By raising Jesus, as also is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So here you have an act, sort of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What was it one, in one sense about King David and the other kings of Israel being set apart is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, the one who would come, who would fulfill his father's mission as a son of God to come to the earth, as Emmanuel, God with us. There's more. Next verse, verse 8 in Psalm 2. This is, and looking down, this is what God tells the king to pray for. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So the king was encouraged to pray and to seek the growth of God's kingdom. But looking up, this can only happen in Christ. How is this fulfilled in Christ? Well, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. One of my favorite texts. I'll probably quote it every few weeks here, it seems like. But I love Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from how many nations? Every nation. From all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And then in verse 10, with palm branches in their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. There he is as the king and to the lamb. There's this promise of the nations asking, I'll give the nations to you, ultimately it's fulfilled in Christ, that at the end of time, every nation, people from every ethnic group will bow the knee before Christ and worship him, that no earthly king can make this happen. But Christ can. He's the one who will rule, and there will be people from every ethnic group, every nation bowing before his throne one day, worshiping him. But friends, there's a flip side to that prayer and a flip side to that coin. Yes, there will be worshipers of every nation of the true Messiah around his throne one day, but many, if not most of those ethnic groups, will reject him and choose not to follow him. And that's where verse 9 follows on this, back in Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So again, looking down historically, the rod was a shepherd's staff. It was used to fight off attackers, and it became a symbol of authority of governments at the time. So when the early Jewish people would hear this, this would be a clear reference to the authority God gave the government to discipline here. But this gets looking up, it gets applied to Jesus, the one who will judge. And those who do not choose to bow the knee to worship him will face the judgment of a holy God with a God who has a rod of iron in his hand. Now look at Revelation 19, verse 13 to 16, and see if you don't pick up on the imagery that carries through from Psalm 2. Revelation 19, he, this is Jesus, is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called, I love this, is the word of God. Now verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, and wide and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with what? A rod of iron. Psalm 2. He will tread the wine passes of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What we just saw in verse 9 back in Psalm 2. He, Jesus, is the one who will break them, the nations, with the rod of iron. He's bringing the wrath of God to bear on all those who refuse to bow the knee and worship him for who he really is. It reminds us, friends, this Christmas season that, yes, Jesus has come as a baby in a manger to fulfill the law perfectly, live a perfect life, die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, raise again, ascend back to heaven. But he's coming again. This reminds me, he's coming in not as a baby in a manger, not a cute little nativity scene. He's coming back riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven and a rod in his hand to bring judgment on everyone who does not bow the knee in worship of God. He's coming back as the reigning king, something no earthly king could fulfill in this. So when you put all that together in Psalm 2, you have a picture, yes, of an earthly king set up by God, a God who's ruling and reigning and choosing to use an earthly king. But you see the failures of any earthly king to deliver this. And so Psalm 2 is pointing us to the Messiah who we are celebrating this Christmas season, who can come and do all these things and can give us hope of being rescued and hope that wrongs be made right and hope of eternity when peace reigns forever. So how do we respond, friends, to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah? How do we respond to the truth that he has come to rescue his people, that he will come again to judge? How do we respond to all this? And there's simply one appropriate response. We seek to delight in knowing him. We seek to know this Messiah that was longed for when Psalm 2 was written. We get to know him, and not just know about him, but we get to delight in knowing him. Psalm 2 for us is a call to delight in the Messiah. It's a call to know him and rejoice in knowing him. Look at verses 10 through 12 here. This is the earthly king speaking again, but he's speaking to the world now. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
What does it look like for this, friends, to delight in the Lord? Well, there's four descriptions here, I think, that give us some insight and give us a glimpse into what it looks like for us to delight in this Messiah who's prophesied in verse 4. And as we look at these four things very briefly, I want you to think, is this true of me? Because, friends, the reality is the Christmas season for a lot of us isn't a whole lot about celebrating Christ. We get really busy with doing a lot of good and fun things, but we miss focusing on the Messiah himself. And so I pray that Psalm 2 and these four things here at the end of Psalm 2 become a thing the Holy Spirit will use in our heart to help us say, see this Christmas season, am I delighting in Christ? Am I delighting in the Messiah? So four evidences, if you will, that we delight in the Messiah. Number one, if we delight in the Messiah, we serve him. If we delight in the Messiah, we will serve him. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. You've seen this in the Psalms. Fear here doesn't mean, don't strike me down. Fear here means reverence or respect. That if we are delighting in the Messiah, one outworking of that delight that God gives us in him is we serve him with reverence and respect. The sovereign God who's ordained all these things we've seen has sovereignly given you spiritual gifts. You have spiritual gifts given by God to use to serve him. He's given you natural talents and abilities for you to use to serve him. He's given you financial resources and homes and cars and all these things for you to use to serve him. Everything we have has come from the sovereign hand of God, not for us to monopolize, for us to use to serve him by making him known and serving others. We get the privilege to do that. Serve the Lord with fear. Friends, are we delighting in the Messiah? Is it showing in us delighting in serving God and serving others? Number two, if we delight in the Messiah, one thing that shows is we find joy in his presence. We find joy in his presence. I love when Greg was praying uh, before the sermon this morning. That's one of the things he was praying about was us opening the Word of God each day and spending time marinating in the Word of God. That's what this is about here. Look at verse 11. We're told to, the second phrase, rejoice with trembling. Again, trembling not, don't strike me down, God. Trembling in the sense of I am so overwhelmed that I get to be in the presence of majesty. The presence of the great I am, the creator, the Alpha and Omega, that we get to be in his presence and we get to rejoice in that. We get to meet with him and talk to him and hear from him. And because Jesus has covered us, because of what Christ did, you and I get to march into the throne room of God without being struck down as we come in covered in Christ's righteousness. Friends, are we delighting in the Messiah and even walking into that throne room? Are we living for ourselves? Are we opening his word and with prayer and worship looking to him for him to speak to us? Are we finding joy in his presence? Friends, delighting in the Messiah manifests itself by serving him. It shows itself as we find joy in his presence, spending time. And number three, it shows by worshiping him. It shows as we worship him. Look at verse 12, this first phrase, kiss the sun. I know that sounds really weird to us, doesn't it? Kiss the sun. What in the world is this talking about here? It means paying homage to, showing respect to. Can you picture in a king's like throne room in the old days, a king sitting there and a subject coming in and bowing down, and the king holds out his hand, and the person kisses it to show respect? That's kind of the image that should be in our minds here. This is a symbol of worship, that we recognize God as a true king, and we are not the king. We're simply a subject, but he's given us access to his throne room. And so we are so overwhelmed by that. We bow down and we worship him because we get to be with the king. We worship him with our songs, with our words, with our lives, because he is worthy. Friends, this Christmas season, are we delighting in the Messiah? And is it overflowing in a heart that is worshiping God day by day by day, not just on Sundays? So friends, if we're delighting in the Messiah, we serve him. We find joy in his presence. We worship him. But last or number four, we make him known to others. We make him known to others. Friends, if we delight in something, you can't help but share about it. 
That's why after certain football games or basketball games, your Facebook and Instagram accounts light up. You're delighting in something, and you're sharing it. You get something really cool your spouse gives you. You delight in it. You share it. Our social media feeds are full of things we're delighting in. When we delight in something, we can't help but share with others. Friends, are we delighting so much in the Messiah that we can't help but share that with others? That's what King David does here. Go back to verse 10. He's making an appeal to the world. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. What's he saying? He's warning them. Be warned of the dangerous path they're on. He's telling people, you're on a path far from God. You're rejecting the one who wants to give you kindness and love. You're rejecting the community that will give you true community and true love. You're rejecting that. Be warned of the path you're on, but be wise. Consider the wise path. Believe in the God who reveals himself to us. And look at the promise he holds out to them. Verse 12, last phrase there. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is an invitation to be blessed, to be happy, to be joyful, to be content, to be satisfied. They can only come from being in him. From running to God, letting him forgive us of our sins and give us Christ's righteousness. Run to God to be reconciled and restored to him. For him to forgive us and then give us grace upon grace upon grace. So you have here the king inviting people to come find the wise path, reject the path of follow their own, and to come take refuge and God. And friends, that's our mission as well, is to make him known. If we delight in him, it overflows to those things. So friends, we find hope when we delight in knowing this Messiah, who's prophesied in Psalm 2 that we see fulfilled throughout the New Testament. This Christmas, friends, I'm going to ask you simply this. Are you delighting in the Messiah? Not do you have the best Christmas decorations on the street, or have the coolest nativity in the front yard, or have the best holiday parties. But friends, are you this Christmas delighting in the Messiah that King David was looking for to do what he himself could never do. This Christmas, are you delighting him? Is it showing because you're serving God and serving others that your heart is not for self, but by God's grace is to serve others? Is your heart this Christmas season longing to be in God's presence, longing to pray and to worship and to be with him? And are you finding an overflow of wanting to make him known to others? And friends, if, our, if we're falling short in that, we just simply cry out for more grace. We can't white-knuckle determination enough to make this happen in our hearts. But as we delight in the Messiah, as we study him for who he is, as we worship him and talk to him, as we spend time with him, he transforms our hearts to produce these things in us. And I pray for myself and each of you, brothers and sisters, this Christmas, that God will be working in our lives where our delight in him grows each and every day. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the God who is sovereign over all things. That, God, you're the creator, you're the sustainer, and, God, you're the one who... Hundreds upon hundreds of years before Jesus even came to earth, as Emmanuel, God with us, had already prophesied in Psalm 2 things that be true of his life. Lord, I pray you would increase our awe and wonder at who you are. And God, that we would see you for you, not who we want you to be, but who you really are. God, would you stir our hearts' affections to long for more of you. This Christmas season, God, in the midst of all the busyness and all the things going on, Lord, would you increase our delight in you? Lord, we can't manufacture that. There's nothing I can do to increase my delight in you and my heart. But God, you can give that. And God, I pray that for myself and these precious brothers and sisters that this Christmas season, these weeks to come, God, you, through your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, would give grace upon grace and stirring our heart affections for you. As we see the Christmas scenes and sing the Christmas songs, that our hearts will go to you, Lord. Our hearts will rejoice in you and who you are. And God, that our affections would show themselves outwardly in lives that long to serve you, in lives that long to worship you, in lives that long to make you known to a world that is raging and people plotting to 
trying to escape from your bands of kindness. We give us much grace for that because we can't do it on our own. Lord, I do pray for each one of us that even this week, Lord, as you turn our hearts day by day to you, as your word comes alive to us, as we sing to you each day of how great you are, Lord, I pray you'd also each day open doors for us to speak about you. Whether it's at a family gathering, whether it's at a, a co-worker event, whether it's with a server at a restaurant, someone in line at a store. God, that you would see, you'd let us see that you've given us and ordained all these moments. Or do you who are sovereign enough to ordain and put a king on a throne and not let people stop that until your time was up? Lord, you're the one who can ordain who's standing in line in front of us at a grocery store. You can ordain who we're running into and talking to at that work event this week. So God, would you give us open doors and give us boldness and courage to speak of the hope we have in you that, God, I pray that we will so be delighting in you that it will just overflow, that we'll open our mouths and before we even realize what we're saying, we're talking about you, Lord. And God, we'll find the joy in that. God, we know that you will get all the glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?